Johnson, um, a man who probably needs no introduction at all. Um, he is a tenured professor of medicine at University of Tennessee Health Science Center. He obviously is an expert in acute respiratory distress syndrome, and specifically in the use of steroids for acute respiratory distress syndrome. He uh, has lent his name to the infamous majority protocol, which we frequently use here at University of Maryland, specifically in shock trauma often. Um, and he is kind enough to give us a lecture today, which he's entitled Glucocorticoid Treatment and ARDS, Safe and Highly Effective. So without further ado, Dr. Maduri, I thank you so much for joining us today, and I cannot wait to hear your talk. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to Zoom with you guys, okay? Hopefully that can provide the concept clearly all throughout. Oops. I don't know why it's doing this, my computer. So try just clicking on the slides instead of the forward and backward button. Oh, thank you. Okay, I have no conflict of history other than academic bias. I really love steroids, okay? I really love steroids. And you'll find out as I goes along. I mean, it's a 32 years love affair. So recently, there are two studies were published, one from Jesus Villar on, in, uh, in Lancet and the recent one regarding COVID-19 uh, recovery trial that provide more robust evidence supporting the safety and efficacy of prolonged glucocorticoid treatment in ARDS. ARDS is an interstitial lung disease and involves any component of the pulmonary lobule, not just the alveolar capillary membrane and uh, shares with histological, bronchial lavage, computer tomography, PET scan findings that are compatible with the glucocorticoid responsive interstitial lung disease. So this is important. And why? Because the duration of treatment in patients with interstitial lung disease, mainly with methylprednisolone, is weeks or months, and they're mostly not life-threatening. So interstitial lung disease is an important concept. Now, there are three temporal phases in ARDS. The first one is the one of respiratory failure, intubation, extubation. Then there is a subacute phase of hospital recovery, followed by long-term after-hospital discharge consequences that we call chronic clinical illness syndrome. And what is important to understand, and this is in the paper that I sent you to share, is that during support with a vital organ like mechanical ventilation, the body undergoes what is called halostatic overload. In other words, the effort that the body does to return things back to normal or to homeostasis is a cumulative metabolic and bioenergetic process that has a cost. There is a cost for that. The higher and the longer, the more there is going to be consequences, both acute and long-term in morbidity and mortality. So this is extremely important. Therefore, the highest priority of any intervention in ARDS is the one to decrease duration of mechanical ventilation, because what that implies, the intervention accelerate the resolution of a disease, and then there are both acute and long-term benefits. So the way to achieve that is to have a treatment that is directed to the core pathogenetic mechanism of ARDS. And I will make the point that that core, in that core, there is the glucocorticoid receptor. And I'll show you some slides related to that. In the first part of this presentation, I'll show you the data, okay? So I'll show you where the data comes from. I'll show you the treatment protocols that we've been investigating in randomized trials, and then the results both related to effectiveness and safety. So there are 10 randomized trials, almost 1,100 patients. 
Then there are some control study not randomized that is not worth going over now. And then there are some observational study. These observational studies are very important from historical perspective. Why? They were done 30 years ago, okay? But a lot has been learned from those and that influence the way we have moved forward. So those are observational study in patients with late ARDS, so patient on mechanical ventilation for a week that are getting worse, they're not improving. And it starts with Ashbaugh and Patty. They wanted to originally describe ARDS 50 years ago. In patients that failed to improve, they got an open lung biopsy. The open lung biopsy showed that ARDS is interstitial lung disease, showed that there is fibro proliferation and fibrosis, and for that reason, they started glucocorticoid treatment. So these studies, there are a total of seven studies, open lung biopsy, have gallium citrate as a way to look at lung and endothelial permeability in the lung. The bronchovular lavage, in our study, was bilateral bronchovular lavage, which were a lot of things done, cell count, differential, cytology, cultures, a lot of things were done. And importantly, longitudinal markers in the plasma and bronchovular lavage of cytokines, chemokines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so a lot was learned. This is the study that we published. That's what is very, very important. It's the first one looking at the cytokine response in plasma and BAL in patients that get corticosteroids. A lot of important information. So what we learned then, there are some important lessons. Number one, the degree of severity in inflammation, there is a correlation between systemic and pulmonary based on BIL and plasma finding, okay? It correlates with disease severity, disease morbidity, especially nosocomial infection. Nosocomial infection actually correlates with degree of inflammation, and that's something that we can discuss at the end, and with mortality. So systemic inflammation is extremely important. And what about glucocorticoid treatment? What they realize that the importance is duration of treatment. And then if it's discontinued prematurely with rapid tapering, frequently in 30 to 40% of patients, there is rebound, okay, that is characterized by um, uh, the patient going back on mechanical ventilation. There is resurgence of the RDS. But if you restart treatment, then you can go back to resolution of a disease. So very important information. Now, there are 10 randomized studies. Four are metoprenizolone, five hydrocortisone, and one dexamethasone, okay? What I'm going to show you now is an updated meta-analysis for one published in 2017, in which we had to this one already done, the one from the Villar study on dexamethasone. How many patients? Almost 1,100, 322, with metoprenizolone, about 500 with other reports, so 277 with dexamethasone. So this is the Villar study, very, very important. But what we had here is an IPDA, so an individual patient meta-analysis that we published four years ago, in which we gathered all the data sets from the four randomized studies that I'm gonna show you, put them all together, and we learned a lot about initiational treatment, about tapering, about a lot of other things. So I'll show you this aggregate data to give you some understanding how methylprenizol works. So now let me show you the treatment protocols. So there are studies in early RDS implying patient on mechanical ventilation for less than three days, that in late RDS imply patient on mechanical ventilation for greater than seven days. Here we have eight randomized studies, almost 900 patients. We're gonna look at the drug here 
then the initial dose, including the bonus, what he has the patient in 24 hours, first 24 hours, the total duration of treatment, and the lithose tapering after successful extubation. In yellow are metoprenisol. And what you see here, they go up to 28 days and they got good tapering. The dosage is one milligram per kilogram plus the infusion. So you, an average of 80 milligram plus 80 milligram with infusion, you go up to 160 in the first 24 hours. Then we have the hydrocortisone study. So this is methylprenisol equivalent from, 60 to, from 40 to 60. But look at here, the duration is everyone seven days. That's it, seven days. Is there tapering? No, seven days everyone. So remember this. Then we have the dexamethasone study, the beautiful study from Spain. It's 100 milligram, and then it's five days, 20 milligram, 100, five days, 10 milligram. There is no tapering. Once the patient is extubated before day 10, treatment is removed. Arbitrary decision here. Then we have the late ARDS. The Steinberg is the one from the ARDS network, and it's double the dose of the early, up to 32 days. There is tapering in the one that we perform, but not tapering, only 36 hours. That is nothing in the RDS network. And this is very important because it allows us to see the value of tapering comparing data of this study compared to the other three studies with methylprenizol. So everybody asked me, what's your favorite drug? Is methylprenizol, is dexamethasone? There is no favorite drug. Yes, I love methylprenizol, but I love it not per se is because we have more data on methylprenizol where I can make a case. I think the methylprenizol and dexamethasone are both equally, but I'll give you the data as we go along that you make your mind. But what is important is not for a drug per se, but is the dose, the total duration, and tapering. Those are very important elements. So the question is, do difference in protocols affect outcome? And the answer is yes, yes, yes. So I'm gonna show you now what we have, type of glucocorticoids. My money is on methylprenilzone and dexamethasone. Forget about the hydrocortisone. Time of administration, early, early, early. If you can't within six hours, is the earlier you intervene, the better off you are in decreasing the uh, load that the patient has um, that we discussed before. What about the mode administration? I'm gonna make the case for bolus followed by infusion. This is very, very important. You will see right away the difference in result between this and the other modality, okay? This is the best one. Treatment duration should go up to four weeks at least as an average, okay? And tapering is essential. And we'll discuss that after the patient has resolution respiratory failure, you really need to proceed for other two weeks to achieve resolution and restore the HP axis. So we'll go over that. Forget about that. And now we go to the Overall response, this is how things work. So this is an introduction to the 10 studies, and we're gonna look at reduction in inflammation, improving gas exchange, reduction in mechanical ventilation as you state. So what I'm trying to tell you is I wanna see if by decreasing inflammation, that is an important pathobiological event, I accelerate disease resolution, and therefore I achieve an improvement in gas exchange, of course, and reduction of the other two. So let's see what happened. I'm gonna report now the percentage among those reported. What you see right away that there are 10 studies. They use different protocols, but they all achieve the same results, which is really incredible, very incredible. Now let's go into each individual study. What you see here are the four other methylprenizolol, and the answer is yes all throughout. Very nice, consistent reply. Those are the uh, hydrocortisone study, 
And you see, yes, almost all throughout, there are several not reported, and there are two no. There was a reduction, but it was not significant, but that's it. Those are the only two with a no. Then we have a dexamethasone, and there is yes everywhere, but there was no report here. So in, in, in summary, you have a consistent res response regarding these variables, no matter what treatment I use, no matter how long I use it, and so forth. So this is very important, consistent response that you don't see in any other intervention in ARDS. We're going to spend some data starting now on metoprenizumab because we have a lot of data here. And I'm going to show you first the response, biological response. We're going to see what happened in the plasma, in the DAL, and so forth. So let, first, let me show what decreased in plasma and DAL. Inflammatory cytokines, chemokines, adherial molecule, in C-reactive protein, of course. Alveolar capillary permeability improved, okay, measured by BAL albumin total protein and neutrophilia. And procollagen, type 1 and 3, decreased. What increased? The albumin, and because the liver now stops producing albumin, that's to produce less uh, 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 acute phase reactants. Increase in IL-10, anti-inflammatory, and anti-inflammatory in relation to pro-inflammatory. Surfactant, this is the RDS network study. There is an increase in functional large aggregate, significant. And protein C, you guys are young, you don't know, but there was a time in which activating C was promoted because increased protein C level. Well, metoprenizolone does a better job without side effects. What the outcome by day 28? This gives you a good understanding of what happened during treatment. I'm going to show you, remember, this is aggregate data from four randomized studies, including early and late. We're going to look at patients that died before they are extubated, UAB, patients that achieved extubation by day 28, alive but still intubated by day 28, discharged alive from the ICU. This is a clinical data. Okay, so what do we see here? Died before extubation, 12 methylprenizone versus 29. Achieve extubation, whoa, whoa. Alive but did not achieve intubation. Difference. Discharge alive, 75 versus 49. Okay? So there are a large, substantial, and significant dif absolute difference in all of this category. And uh, uh, the message is clear. Metoprenizone works. So there is no doubt when you look at this data that the treatment works. Now, the cost is only $240, which is a good and a bad. The bad is there is nobody promoting this drug because nobody makes money. The good that is affordable everywhere in the world. So time to successful extubation. This is important. So we look at the late. Those that got treatment started after day seven. And what you see here in blue is metoprenizolone. In green is uh, placebo. This is what was requested, uh, the colors by the publication. But anyway there is a doubling of the extubation when you use uh, uh, metoprenizolone. What about earlier? Yes. So this is uh, before day three, and there is more than a triple of the extubation by day 28. This is what we see on day 14. Look at day 14. So day 14 here has the same rate of extubation in the placebo as in late RDS. But when we start early, look at the difference that we have in extubation. We go to close to 90% by day 14 compared to about close to 60% here. Okay, so most of the patients in which you use this treatment that I'll review at the end 
get extubated by day 14. Okay, most patients. Most patients, when I say 90% or greater. And the treatment is only $100 for 100 days. So quite an effective intervention, okay? So the idea is start early. The earlier you start, the, best, the better the response. Now I want to really stress the concept of tapering because that is not going to cross very well to many of my colleagues uh, in other places. This is a study that we conducted, and we look at two patient population with severe pneumonia. One severe pneumonia with ARDS, they received metoprenisolone in red, and one without ARDS, they received hydrocortisone in blue. And what you see here is reduction in C-reactive protein level that is very rapidly for both in comparison to placebo. So far so good. Now hydrocortisone removed after seven days, while metoprenisolone is continued, hydrocortisone is, re is discontinued, we have rebound, rebound. So there are 13 patients here. And what you see here that there was a similar time to extubation for both, but then once we reach here, it stops. So termination of treatment had consequences. Of a 13 patient that achieved to this point, seven had an increase in C-reactive protein. So this is aggregate data. If we look at the other, it will be much higher. Three of the seven had worsening organ dysfunction. Three of the seven went up on mechanical ventilation. And two dies by day 15 because there was no restitution of treatment. So tapering is very, very important. Let me make that case by looking at the individual patient data from metoprenisolone. And we're gonna look at rapid versus slow tapering. The rapid tapering is the one from the ARDS network. The slow tapering is the one from all the other three randomized studies that went on for 12 to 14 days. So this is methylprenisolone, white is placebo, rapid tapering. This is the metoprenisolone data, I mean the ARDS network data. 26% of patients, they were rapidly tapered, returned to mechanical ventilation if a treatment was steroids. If it was placebo, only 7%. What about the combination of the other three studies? 7% and 4%. So when you have slow tapering, there is really no impact on return to assisted breathing. And so the methylprenisolone group, in this case, had an increased risk for return to assisted breathing. While in the control group, there was no impact, no impact. So let's look at the RDS network, what happened. The, the treatment was discontinued five and a half day, five days after extubation, okay? Instead, in the placebo, 13 days. None of the placebo patients went back because there was recrudescence of the RDS. They went back for a host of other reasons. Some required surgery, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the, the, this group had a more rapid return to mechanical ventilation compared to this one, of course, and was usually three days after discontinuation of treatment. So treatment was discontinued about here, and then within three days, the patient went back on mechanical ventilation. So the idea is slow tapering, extremely important. Now, people that don't like tapering, quote up to date, and up to date states, HPA suppression is unlikely in a patient who has received any dose of glucocorticoid for less than three weeks. But what these people fail to pay attention to, I'm sorry, that this deals with chronic glucocorticoid therapy. So this is rheumatology literature. It has nothing to do with critical illness. There's plenty of data that even five days is associated with adrenal insufficiency. 
So you always need to taper, be aware of that. And then we'll go into more details later. Now, what about reduction in duration of mechanical ventilation? I'm gonna show the aggregate data on methylprednisolone versus the Villar study. This is the Villar study, so same duration on mechanical ventilation for treated patient, but a much larger difference because there are people with late RDS with methylprednisolone. So methylprednisolone has an average 10 days reduction in duration of mechanical ventilation and five with dexamethasone. Let's look at the individual data from these trials. So we have first the early RDS, our trial, an Egyptian trial, our late trial, the RDS network trial. So this is the duration of mechanical ventilation. Now let's compare that to the placebo. And then let's look at the difference. And what is fascinating is that there is a nine to 10 days difference consistent across all study. So methylprednisone is associated with a biological improvement that accelerate resolution of ARDS as demonstrated by a significant reduction in duration of mechanical ventilation, not shown by any other intervention in ARDS. So consistent large reduction, very important. Now, this is the ARDS NECPRO trial, the allegedly negative trial. And few are aware that actually there were 9.5 days reduction in duration of mechanical ventilation. And they are barely mentioned in the paper. Patients given methylprednisone were able to breathe without assistance sooner than patients without placebo, and this is the data, okay? What they forgot to mention by accident, I'm sure, is that among survivors of mechanical ventilation, the reduction was 12 days, 12 days reduction in survival in this allegedly negative trial. Now, for the young fellows, I strongly encourage an educational journal club in which you compare the review of a 2006 New England Journal manuscript regarding late RDS and the reanalysis made that we published a few days uh, in uh, two years ago. It is the same data set. There are two contrasting interpretations. One is it is effective and unsafe, and the other one that is highly effective and safe. So you're you gonna learn a lot about politics, pharmacoeconomics, and a lot of things. Very good, back to work. Now let's look at mechanical free days before we move into mortality. Mechanical free days with methylprednisolone, very the increase is 8.5. Hydrocortisone four days, five days with dexamethasone, average of about six days. Okay. And now let's move to mortality. So we close the chapter on mechanical ventilation. Yes, there is an effect. Okay. Now we're going to look at mortality in early ARDS first, and we look at each individual group. This is the dexamethasone. This is the relative reduction in mortality. This is hydrocortisone. This is methylprednisolone. This is in early RDS. And this is methylprednisolone in late ARDS. And what is important that five of the 15 patients here that belong to the RDS network died after methylprednisolone was rapidly removed the patient had deterioration, returned to mechanical ventilation, did not receive steroids again and died. So if they would have provided tapering, the result would have been much better. Now, this is the hospital mortality meta-analysis for patients randomized before day 14. And the reduction in mortality is 50% for methylprednisone, about 25% for hydrocortisone, 35% 
roughly four dexamethasone with an average of 35%. So there is nice reduction. Now, this is the interesting part. What is the difference between this study? This went on for weeks. These were limited to seven days and these to 10 days. So it appears like longer duration may be associated with the improved outcome. And if you look at the number needed to save one life is five, 10, eight, and seven. Okay, you can save after five patients that you treat one patient based on this data. Now complications. Uh, the risk for neuromuscular weakness, the risk for GI bleeding, and the risk for infection is not increased, period. And I refer you to the, uh, the, the task force meta-analysis that was published. Now, there is bolus-associated hyperglycemia. So why do we have hyperglycemia? Hyperglycemia, unless you're a diabetic, of course, uh, is, is if the, the glucocorticoids activate the acute phase response that in addition to all the hepatic acute phase reactant includes hyperglycemia. And the reason for that is be, that is the substrate for mitochondria to produce ATP. So it's a good thing done in moderation, of course. Now, uh, what instead the literature misrepresents? The literature tells you that there is risk for complications that don't exist. Their complication comes from quoting all the RDS trial, RDS randomized study from 30 years ago longer, where they use massive doses of steroids uh, that are about 10 grams a day. Uh, those were in intoxication. So those had side effects. The new study with relatively low to moderate dose for prolonged period do not have side effects. Or they refer to long-term outcome in rheumatology literature, those are people without systemic inflammation and the impact of steroids is completely different. It is related to duration and dose. And they use this as an excuse to justify short duration of treatment. So if you go to the people that use seven days, 10 days, well, you know, I don't wanna use it longer because I'm gonna have more side effects. No, that is not the case. Quote the correct literature, longer duration, in, in ARDS is not associated with increased side effects, actually to the contrary. But what they underappreciate is the risk of rebound. So when you use for seven and 10 days and you don't implement uh, uh, slow tapering, there is rebound and that is a very high risk. Moreover, if you discontinue before the patient is extubated, you don't appreciate the rebound because the patient cannot get off a ventilator. So tapering is essential and that is what underappreciated why they misrepresent the risk of complication. Regarding complication, I want to bring up the concept of infection. That's the one most quoted. You're going to look at the rate of the patient that gets infected on methylprednisolone is decreased by 25%. And this is with trials with a longer durational treatment. And there is no much of a change instead with hydrocortisone or dexamethasone. And this is the average of all these. Okay, so there is no evidence that there increased number of patients with infection. In effect, it needs to be a trend towards a reduction. So prolonged treatment is actually safe. And there is some data that may indicate that the risk of infection is decreased. One reason is very simple. I decrease the duration of mechanical ventilation by eight, 10 days. Of course, I have lower risk, lower exposure to developing infection. But also when you decrease systemic inflammation, you minimize the risk of inter and extracellular bacterial growth. So both inter and extracellular, this is our studies. 
Also, you increase the ability of neutrophil, opsonic, and phagocytic function, and you increase intracellular killing. So there is evidence in actuality, the correct use of steroids, and we'll see why, improves, uh, uh, decreases the chance of patient developing infection. Now we go to the more complex part of the lecture, in which we are going to show you how steroids work. So steroids are agonists. They bind to the glucocorticoid receptors, and they generate a biological pharmacological response. And glucocorticoids are the most important hormones in homeostatic regulation. They regulate greater than 20% of genes and have very important rapid non-genomics effects. So why do we give steroids? The old idea was anti-inflammatory, it's over. We give steroids to support the regulatory function of the activated glucocorticoid receptor throughout, and this is important, all phases, all phases of disease development. So it's not just anti-inflammatory. And this will be clear in a couple of slides. So this is a new concept. So the glucocorticoid receptor operates at four places. Number one in the cytoplasm, number two in the nuclear DNA, number three on the cell uh, membrane, and four in the mitochondria. The cell membrane is very important. I don't have time to go over, unfortunately. Very important for rapid non-genomic effects that are very important in clinical illness. Instead of the mitochondria, this is all new stuff over the last five, 10 years. We know now that the glucocorticoid receptor not only operates in the mitochondrial DNA, but it's important to increase the numbers and function of mitochondria, every function, not just production of ATP, but also production of hormones and be involved in a lot of metabolism. Very, very important. Now, let me show you a slide to give you some understanding of the interaction between NF-kappa-B and GR-alpha uh, in the cells. So this is just a diagram that summarizes some of the important aspects, doesn't take care of everything that is very complex. But essential, the glucocorticoid receptor is present in almost every cell in high concentration, neutrophils 5,000, macrophages about 10,000. And NF-kappa-B, that is the most important transcription factor for inflammatory cytokines, is composed by P65 and P60 proteins, but is bound to inhibitory protein called kappa-B that keeps in, in a quiescent state. When you have a host of inflammatory signals that reach the cell membrane, kinases are formed, they phosphorylate and degrade I-kappa-B. Now the inhibitory signals is removed and NF-kappa-B translocate or migrate to the DNA, bind to the DNA binding sites, start the transcription of a host of inflammatory cytokines, but much more, including chemokines, inflammatory enzymes, additional molecule receptors. And if you're interested, I really strongly encourage you to read this paper that provides an updated uh, update on, on the function uh, that occurs with activation of Kappa-B, how they're important in MODs, in ARDS, and also in COVID-19. Now, back to work. TNF and IL-1, et cetera, are releasing to the systemic circulation. They give rise to systemic inflammation. Systemic inflammation activates by potalamic pituitary axis. The cortex produces cortisol, or if we give metoprazine or dexamethasone, we give exogenous glucocorticoids. They're all lipophilic. They uh, freely cross the cell membrane. Now they bind to the receptor. The receptor is activated. Once it's activated, translocate to the nucleus, bind to the response element, start production of anti-inflammatory mediators. But 
most important, what people believe will be the best mechanism to block NF-kappa B is a direct one-to-one protein-protein interaction in which they bind to each other and then NF-kappa B cannot translocate and produce inflammatory uh, cytokines. So this is how the mechanism works. Now, let me show you some data on systemic inflammation to give you some understanding. And I'm going to show the findings of a seminal study that has been reproduced multiple, multiple times. But since it was the first one, it was really the one that brought the message up, I think it's important to review this. So what we do now, we're going to look at four NF-mediating inflammatory cytokines or chemokines over 10 days in patients with the RDS, divided in 17 survivors and 17 non-survivors. This is what happened with non-survivors. This is what happened with survivors. And what we notice is there is much lower initial level in survivor than non-survivor, but there is more. What happened over time? Not only they had higher level initially, but there was persistent elevation over time in non-survivors. And there was progressive reduction in survivors. This is a dysregulated response this is a regulated response. I'm going to spare you this, but similar findings were also found in the bronchial lavage with strong correlation between the two. And what failed to regulate or regulate is the glucocorticoid receptor. So that's the message. What this tells us is the problem with regulation. Regulation occurs at the recept- glucocorticoid receptor level. And so now I'm going to show you some fascinating data on the relationship between GR-alpha and FKB in patients with the RDS. This is a study done in a patient with the RDS, some of them recruited in a randomized study. And we, what happened is the plasma was collected from day one to day eight of the RDS. And then uh, healthy patients, healthy adults, peripheral bad mononuclear cells were exposed to the plasma. And inside the cell cytoplasm and nucleus, very relationship between NF-kappa B and GRA-alpha were investigated. So what you see here in the x-axis is uh, NF-kappa-B, log transform, and if we move from the right to the left, there is an increase in NF-kappa-B. So to the right is dysregulated, left is regulated. And what you see on the y-axis instead is the log transform of uh, nuclear bonding of the activated glucocorticoid receptor alpha. And if it goes up, there is an increase, okay? Now, this is what happened to, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention, the three groups, non-survivors, six patients, non-improvement based on language score, but they survived to day eight, and they will be randomized, 17 patients, and then seven patients didn't improve and survive spontaneously. Look at this. This is the group that failed to improve and die, and you receive a rapid increase in F-kappa-B, but no change in glucocorticoid receptor alpha. So NF-kappa-B keeps binding. This instead is a group that failed to improve, but they still survive. So there is more GR-alpha activation, lesser degree of activation of NF-kappa-B. And now observe carefully what happened to the survivors. Okay? What we observe here is an inverse relationship in which NF-kappa-B goes down and GR-alpha goes up. Reduction increase, reduction increase. This is what you see, this, and this is a return to homeostasis. This is what you want to see in every patient because this patient have a rapid improvement in uh, lung injury score, get extubated, and go home. 
And what you observe also that the difference between the two is on day one. So that is right here. So the degree of activation was determined in outcome. If you're above this level, you have resolution. Before this level, you have progression of a disease. So the outcome of the RDS is determined early. That's why you need to start right away with the glucocorticoid treatment. Now, this data has been reproduced over and over again. And there are multiple clinical experimental studies showing that cells, both circulating and tissue cells, in RDS have generalized reduction in glucocorticoid receptor alpha, number and function at every level within the cell, cytoplasm, nuclear, mitochondrial DNA. And as a consequence, these patients have insufficient glucocorticoid receptor alpha down-regulatory activity. Insufficient, okay? So the question is, can I improve this? And we'll find out that later, soon. But first, let me tell you that this is the work used to define CERSI, critical illness-related corticosteroid sufficiency, insufficient glucocorticoid down-regulatory activity at cellular level. So can I improve this? Well, this patient gets randomized. Let's see what happens. So we go to the same thing. This is where we were before. These are the 17 patients. They failed to improve by survive to day eight and get randomized. Let's see what happens when they're randomized here. We moved here to placebo. No much. No much. What happened when they're randomized to metoprenizone? Uh-huh. So we go back to the inverse relationship that we observed in patients that have a, a, a regulated response. So the message is that the patient with this regulated response can improve it if I supplement with glucocorticoids the number and function of the glucocorticoid receptors, and then I change from dysregulated to regulated the direction, and the direction now is driven by glucocorticoid receptor and not NF-kappa-B. Okay. So, metoprenizolol treatment associated restoration of G-alpha number and function, effective downregulation of systemic and pulmonary inflammation. So that's how the treatment works. Now, about 20 years ago, something happened, and that something really was uh, quite incredible. Up to that point, we used to view glucocorticoids as anti-inflammatory, period. There was the general view across all disciplines. But then a study was done by these people at NIH, a fantastic group, in which they look at the effect of glucocorticoid on gene expression profile in uh, peripheral blood mononuclear cells from healthy dogs. Okay, all what we have, the cells, we expose them to the uh, glucocorticoid. And what we see here, we look at what happened at inflammation, innate recognition. So let's look at inflammation uh, to go back to the understanding. What we see that there is downregulation. So 9% of the genes were downregulated. So far, so good? That's what we expect. But this is what we did not expect, that the 12% of the genes were upregulated. I said, what's going on here? Are you anti or pro-inflammatory? In other words, they discovered that there is a bidirectional action, stimulatory and suppressive at the same time. So this really got everybody to start rethinking. A lot of work happened, and now we go to reassessment glucocorticoid receptor function, and the group of Dr. Sidlowski, I'm sorry, 
in North Carolina provided good part of the answer to this. So this is where we were up to that point. Steroid repress inflammation by inhibiting NF-kappa B and AP1, as we saw, and increasing the transcription of anti-inflammatory cytokines. So far, so good. But there is much more. And they say, we need to look at the whole aspect of the disease. And we look at the whole aspect of the disease, then they present this hypothesis with a lot of data that the glucocorticoid receptor behaves as a rheostat in which they constantly adjust their response throughout all three phases of what is the immune endocrine homeostatic correction. Instead, how the stress response tells to bring us back to homeostatic state. And look at this, innate immune response, ready and reinforced. Surprise, okay, because it's called an immunosuppressive drug. Uh-uh-uh, it's not. Then we go to repress inflammation. And that have repressed inflammation, we go to resolve and restore. So just not resolution and inflammation is bringing back the body, the tissue, to normal function and anatomy and function. So let's look at this in some details very briefly. Surprisingly, it increases the expression of toll-like receptor, activates the inflammasome, increases bone marrow-derived neutrophils, we knew that, activates the, the acute phase response. But this is it. Repress of that immunity. This is not an immunosuppressive effect. This is a resting state because we need to conserve this energy at this point in the disease process. And then we're going to bring it back later on to do other things, to innate, to work on innate immune system. Then there is cooperation between pro and anti-inflammatory transcription factor. Uh, and this is important. This study is fascinating. This is a study done by Sidrowski again. It looks at gene involved in inflammation. There are about eight to 900. 210 of them can only be activated if the glucocorticoid and, and, uh, can only be co-regulated by TNF and glucocorticoids. None alone can do that. It's amazing. So it's actually pro-inflammatory in the early phase of a disease in order to get rid of insult and then move on to the next phase that is to repress inflammation in order to limit the damage to the host. Once inflammation is on the way down, then we go to resolve. There is increased expression of annexin 1, GILS, secretion of annexin 1. There is this leads to apoptosis of a neutrophils, very important, so they don't do damage anymore. And there is also production of antifibrotic antioxidant molecules to limit tissue damage and fibrosis. And go, we go to the best part. Now that the, the neutrophils are taken care of. They are not causing damage anymore. We need to remove them. We need to remove all the debris that are caused by the inflammatory process. And so the macrophages now turns to M2, pro-resolving. The efferocytosis or phagocytose apoptotic neutrophils, they cause immune silence, stop production of pro-inflammatory mediators, increase production or anti-inflammatory mediator, including pro-resolving lipid mediator. And this is fascinating. The clearance from the lymphatic of all this junk is mediated by the glucocorticoid receptors. They really increase the mobility of the macrophages in order to go rapidly uh, to and through the lymphatic system and start the induction of acquired immunity. So it's very complicated. I'm sorry to give this slide to you, but to give you some understanding, things are really rapidly changing in our understanding what is the most important mechanism for survival. Very, very important. 
And so we cannot talk, we cannot look at steroids as anti-inflammatories alone, but they support the host all throughout the phase of resolution. Very, very important. Why this is important? Because if we stop steroids, once the patient is extubated, then we don't take advantage of restoring the tissue. Okay, so we need to continue steroids at the lower dose in order to restore the tissue, return anatomy function, and importantly, to minimize the risk of long-term complications. How much time we got? Okay, now we go to the pharmacy, the stuff that no one wants to talk about it. And I personally dislike, but I have to, because actually it's very important to then explain to you what is the best method. Let me go straight to the point. Pharmacodynamics means potency for steroids, both genomic and non-genomic, and is expressed as IC50 or 50% of the concentration of the, con of the concentration to achieve 50% of the desired effect. This is important. Potency correlates with receptor binding. What receptor binding? Glucocorticoids. So I keep coming back to the glucocorticoid when I talk about pharmaco pharmacology here. Now let's talk about the second thing that is pharmacokinetics. Pharmacokinetics talk about the time exposure of the drug. So magnitude and duration of exposure, where? At the receptor site, not far away where the receptors are. And so the area under the curve of effective time is this one. And as long as you are here, we do something until we go below the minimal effective concentration. Again, both depend on exposure binding exposure time, very important. So this is the uh, relative receptor affinity of a drug that we use. And what you see, the most powerful one is dexamethasone. So dexamethasone is more affinity for a receptor. That's why it's more potent. And this study shows that actually potency correlates with receptor affinity, 95, not bad. Okay, so affinity to the receptor is what defines potency. Now, this is how the rheumatologist explain the relationship between dosage and effect. This is metoprolinsal dosage as we go along from six up to greater than 200. And those are genomic effects, the one that I showed you before, blocking inflammatory cytokine production, etc. And what you see, there is a rapid growth, then it slows down. These are non-genomic effects that I don't have time to talk, but are also very important. Slow initially, then rapid. And those are the combined effects. So what happens when you give a patient 80 milligram and 160? 80 milligram, you get most of the genomic and part of the non-genomics. When you go to 160, you get almost most of both, okay? So when in our protocol, we start with the loading bolus, we achieve this by day one, and that's the reason. We want to maximize this on the first day of treatment. And now I'm going to show you the concentration time, so the, the, the pharmacokinetics, in essence, of the studies the, based on the protocols that done. So this is metoprimizolone, 20 milligram Q6 hours, up and down, up and down, up and down. So a lot of time is below the minimum effective concentration. Pick and body. This is when I give an infusion without a bolus. It takes about six hours before I reach a therapeutic effect. So it doesn't work very well. It doesn't work rapidly. This is the, uh, the large study, dexamethasone. So 
So dexamethotrexamine is very good under recurve lookout. It's very good, very good. But then we go to the 12 hours, okay? And now we don't have much of an effect, which is fascinating. I did not expect this. I got this stuff only in the last few weeks. And this is what happened. This is what happened when you use a bolus and then the infusion. So you see there is a much larger area under the curve. Therefore, there is more exposure, more time to work. Now, what about potency? Potency is showing here, and I very briefly, this is the metal the dexamethasone study. This is the potency that the drug achieved. But again, we go to the 12 hours, we start to go down, 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 down. This is instead when we use the combination uh, of metoprenisolone bolus. So this stays up. So this is the reason why I use a bolus is an infusion. I have a longer exposure and I have a potency that goes there for a longer period of time. Now I'm going to show the real data. So there's a real patient, a randomized study we've done using metoprenisolone. And you're going to show hepatic clearance of the drug. So this is the protocol that we use now. This is the pharmacokinetic done on that protocol. And what you see, the hepatic clearance is slow in the first 48 hours, then goes up. Why? Because inflammation is associated with the reduction in the work of the cytochrome P450. And so there is less clearance when there is high inflammation. As inflammation comes down, then there is less of this, and then we have improved clearance. Uh, there is improved clearance of metoprenisolone. So improved clearance takes about seven days, three days to work by the time we get the cytokines down. Now, this is important. Those are all the patients that we, that we treat. And look at patient 15. Patient 15 is on the bottom. Patient 17 has a rapid increase in clearance. Patient 15 now, but they got the same doses. So this is important. So I'm giving the same protocol to the patients, but the patient goes in every direction. There is a lot of variability, okay? And this is very important. Let's go more on this. Now I'm going to show the real methylprenisol values in each patient. So what we have on day one, rapid increase, okay? I have both genomic and non-genomic. This is a bonus and infusion. Then I start to go down as hepatic clearance, okay? Clear, hepatic clearance improved. The level was down. Then I reach a steady state. Now let's look at the steady state here, okay? And what you see is that the medium level that works about 200, fine, no problem. But look at the range. The range is 50 to 820. The methylprenisone level, remember, what works is dosage and exposure. Dosage and exposure. And here you have a dosage that goes in every direction. What I'm trying to tell you that what you do in a patient may be completely different response in another one, despite the same dosage. So you have to take this in mind. Why? Because if a patient does not respond, because the level is low, then you may have to increase the dosage. So you need to follow C-reactive protein level and adjust your dose because there is wide between patient variability. So this is a counter-concept, something that cannot be taken into consideration when you run the randomized trial. Very, very important. I apologize. Uh, the last few slides to finish. How to use it? Okay. In essence, steroids work very well, but you got people that know how to use umbrella, people that are inexpert, and people are in love. So you cannot blame the umbrella if you get wet, okay? You must know how to use it correctly. That's the message. So how do we achieve optimal results? 
timing, dosage, model delivery, duration, tapering, co-intervention that I cannot discuss are all essential to achieve optimal response. Best results early, within six hours if you can. Initial bolus, okay, to achieve maximal glucocorticoid satura alpha saturation. Followed by an infusion, you see why now, to achieve high level for response, increase lung penetration, I don't have time to cover, and decrease glycemic variability was in two randomized trials. And then those adjust based on, you know, based on giving of a duration, uh, targeting clinical and laboratory. I mean, follow gas exchange improvement, follow laboratory marking and adjust. You can go up and down in the dosage. And then dose tapering at the end is very important, gradual recovery of HP axis. This is our protocol. After the diagnostic evaluation, we give a bolus of 80 milligram, saturation of a receptor. We start with infusion, you know why. In the early part, this is potentiating native immunity, okay? And don't be surprised if you see some increase in CRP level in the first day or two. Then we have co-intervention, uh, we add with vitamin C, B1 and D, and uh, that improves glucocorticoid receptor and mitochondrial function. And all this, to, this, all throughout this time, we repress inflammation. We model C-reactive protein, lung injury score, SOFA, infection parameter, and procalcitonin that is not affected by glucocorticoid. So this is a very good progress. And then we observe response to treatment. Remember, there is variability. So if a patient failed to respond, okay, or worsen, we double the dosage, okay? Then let's move along. If a patient is intubated for greater than seven days, we used to do surveillance BAL to identify the infections in the absence of fever. Now we rarely do it, but most patients get intubated very early, okay? But procalcitonin actually can help. But just in case the patient is longer than seven days, it's worthwhile to do a BAL if a patient can tolerate. Now, if a patient improves instead of deteriorating, so there are good high levels, things move out fast and get extubated before day 14, and this is the 90% of the patient, then we move on to the treatment to day 15, okay? So we decrease the duration of treatment based on improvement. And we continue with an infusion always, but half a dosage. Now, this is important, under-recognized. What we found in our pharmacokinetic study is that when you start the PO treatment, there is no measurement of measured methylprednisone recirculation. So now we continue for five days after extubation. For five days extubation, we continue with IV, not a PO treatment, even if they can have it. So we continue this, right, for another week to continue the resolution, and then another six days to achieve restoration of hepatolamic acids. So this is the protocol that we use and we found to be extremely effective. Now, just to finish something funny. So I was uh, last July, middle of July, was coming back from Italy at uh, uh, the last two days of my vacation. And then the, the cell phone goes on and I get this email from Lancet. I say, what Lancet want from me? And they tell me, would you mind to review this uh, paper? And this is the abstract. The thing essentially is not different than what you find in the final publication. And so this is the first paper showing a reduction in mortality in patient with the RDS receiving low tidal volume ventilation. So now the chapter, if they work or not, in patient with high low tidal volume is finished, they work in both. 
and there was a significant reduction in mortality. So I celebrated with a couple of spritz and some good cheese. And that, I have to tell you, was one of the best day I had. So I want to say thank you, Jesus, Villar, for that. It was a great, great gift. I really appreciate it. Get, get me back to life. So this is the protocol that we recommend, but you can use dexamethasone. It's just fine. What we recommend if you use dexamethasone, don't discontinue before estubation. It doesn't make any sense, especially if you see there is a continuous improvement. And then after estubation, continue for another eight days to allow restoration of the tissue, complete resolution, and to recovery of HP axis. And remember, I show you why. This is not in the protocol. I have to clarify that. Otherwise, Jesus is going to get upset. Okay, Jesus. Uh, but that's what we recommend if you decide to use dexamethasone for whatever reason. Very good. I finished. All, I apologize. I took the extra minutes. Dr. Maduri, this talk was wonderful. Um, I, uh, I learned a tremendous amount about the data behind steroids and the administration of steroids, and I feel very grateful to have had you here today.